Um, I, bring, I bring good news from the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John this evening. The good news is this, that, that being broken, that being a sinner, that being someone that doesn't have their life all figured out, does not disqualify you from following Jesus. In fact, I want to double down on that claim, and I want to say that it is, it is actually a prerequisite to being a follower of Jesus. It's one of the reasons that here at the table, when we are preparing to come to communion, we always begin by saying that the only thing that we ask, the only thing that we require is that you see yourself in need of the grace of God. Because Jesus and the gospel mean absolutely nothing if you, like, it's meaningless if you think you have figured it all out, right? This is the problem with the Pharisees. They had, man, they had created a religious system that they could control. They thought they were good people and they were doing all the right things, but really inside they were being eaten away, right? They, they looked like they had it all together, which is what religion does to us. It, it can make us look like we have it all together, but inside we are dying. And so the good news of the Jesus, the good news of the gospel is that following Jesus, to follow Jesus is actually a prerequisite that you don't have it all together. And the reason I start with this this evening is I'm actually going to talk about some of the earliest followers of Jesus. Um, and the reason I kind of start with this is because you'll see in the followers of Jesus that they didn't have it all together. But often um, we, we have this idea that that if you, some of you think, if you knew my story, if you knew my story, you would know that, that I'm, I'm just not good enough to follow Jesus. And, and I always want to respond, if you only knew the, the story of the earliest followers of Jesus. I mean, they are, they are a test case in people that had messed up their lives and continued to make bad choices. And yet, in spite of their brokenness, Jesus chooses them and does something incredible with their lives. So we're in the middle of this series um, called Following the Way of Jesus, and we are going to walk this road, or journey, sorry, journey with Jesus. Um, we're going to walk this road all the way up until Easter. We began, the first Sunday, we began by, um, by looking at John the Baptist. John the Baptist, this crazy guy. I mean, he, he, his diet consisted of locusts and honey. Um, he killed animals and then wore their skins as his clothing. Um, and he was a turn or burn preacher. So he is in the desert screaming, the end is coming. You better repent or else. But John prepares the way for Jesus and there's this powerful moment at the end of the story um, where, where John catches a glimpse of Jesus walking towards him and he just stops everything. He drops everything and he turns and he says, look, 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 the Lamb of God that picks up and carries off the sins of the world. And then Jesus walks over to John and asks to be baptized by John. Now John has said, you know, in fact he says, I'm not even worthy to like 
untie your sandals. John should have been been asking to be baptized by Jesus, but instead, Jesus is the one asking to be baptized by John. And, and, and in this first interaction, this is the first time that Jesus like even like appears on the scene as an adult in the Gospels. And, and one of the things we get a glimpse of from the earliest moments is that this is going to be an upside-down kingdom. In the life of Jesus, there is a great reversal happening. The things that you expect don't take place, and then the unexpected happens. That is kind of this, that's the refrain all throughout the Gospels. So then Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist and he goes out into the desert. He goes back out into the desert and he is tested for 40 days and 40 nights. And during this testing, this temptation for 40 days and 40 nights, the temptation that, Je- that Jesus is faced with is, he has, he has three key temptations, but they're essentially this. First, it is to go his own way. It is to do his own thing. It is to follow the way that he wants to go rather than the way of the one who sent him. And the second temptation, or kind of the major temptation, is this question about how Jesus will use power. Will he use power like every other ruler before him? Will he use power to lord it over other people and, and to be a, a, uh, an oppressive ruler who, who lines his own pockets? The, 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 the temptation is he takes him the, the top, he takes him the highest point and, and shows him like the highest point of this mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and said, look, all these kingdoms can be yours. Just play by my rules. And Jesus says, no, I've come because I'm about a different kingdom and a different way of living, an upside down kingdom, a kingdom where when you are in charge and when you have power, it means you serve others and you don't serve yourself. It's a powerful moment. So what I want to do today, though, is I want to pick up the story right after this moment because we read, we read, in, um, we, we read uh, immediately following that that Jesus goes up north to Galilee to where he is from. And in Luke chapter 4, so this is just right after the story of the temptation, in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, we read, news about him spread through the whole countryside and he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. This is Jesus' 15 minutes of fame. Because of John the Baptist, who had, who had built up quite a following, because of John the Baptist's like, seal of approval, saying, this is the one I've been waiting for, this is the one we've been waiting for, word about Jesus begins to spread really quickly. And so he comes from that desert experience, that experience, that, that temptation, that time of temptation, that time of testing, that time of where he's wrestling with, what will my ministry look like? He comes from that time in the desert, and he begins his earthly ministry. And then the next thing he does is he begins to call some of his earliest disciples. Now, what we find is that the Jesus' disciples are not a monolith. In fact, it's a really unique uh, assortment of individuals. There were small business owners. Um, there were some zealots or patriots. Um, they were individuals who wanted to overthrow the Roman government so much that they were even willing to use violence. Um, they are, they're just a rough, they're, they're rough characters. Um, uh, there, there were some, a couple of IRS agents, a couple of IRS agents, best modern description. Um, it, it, there, were, there were some blue-collar workers, and there were some white-collar workers. There were some incredibly uneducated people who followed Jesus. Some of his earliest disciples were incredibly uneducated. They couldn't read or write. 
But there are also some incredibly educated people. Now, this, uh, the only reason I even mention that is because sometimes I think this, this narrative kind of gets, this pa- a narrative gets passed around kind of in pop um, Jesus history is that Jesus' followers were kind of uneducated buffoons. Um, but some of Jesus' followers were incredibly educated people. We partially know this because of Matthew, who wrote Matthew's gospel, was a scribe by his own account. And scribes were some of the most well-educated people in society. They could both read and write, which almost no one could do, and they knew multiple languages. And, and so we know through a, a couple different glimpses that Jesus had some incredibly educated followers. But he also had some followers who had no education at all. So in this moment, Jesus is, the, the news is spreading um, throughout the countryside about Jesus. And one of the first things that he does, actually, is after synagogue or after church on the Sabbath, Peter, um, who we'll meet again in just a moment, Peter asks him, hey, will you, um, will you come over to my house for dinner, come over for lunch, and by the way, I forgot to mention, my mother-in-law is ill, could you heal her like in between, in between while we're waiting for the, uh, dinner and dessert, right? Like, could you just heal my mother-in-law? And so Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And, and then in Luke chapter 4, verse 40, we read, At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Now, this is, this is a verse, the type of verse that we just kind of skim on past because Jesus healed people, that's really not a big deal. But, but this, this is so significant because in Jesus' day, in Jesus' generation, in that faith system, you were not supposed to touch sick people. In fact, you were sick because you were sinful. You were sick because you were broken. You were sick because you had done something wrong. And therefore, that meant you were unclean. And if you remember, one of the key things in Jesus' culture was to be, um, if you were a religious person, you wanted to be ritually pure. And so you wanted to stay away from anyone that was unclean. And so that meant if you were sick or you were ill or you had some sort of um, thing that made you different, everyone stayed away from you. You couldn't even be hugged because to touch you could mean you would risk becoming unclean and you too would become an exile. And so what does Jesus do? When Jesus heals, I mean, Jesus could have done like this little, this little thing where he puts his hand out and stands back about 10 feet and says, be healed, and poof, they'd be healed. He could. But instead, he gives dignity to the person that he is healing. He, he reaches out and he touches them. And then he does something really interesting. This is kind of the refrain that happens over and over again. Jesus says, be healed, get up and walk or see for the first time or talk or whatever it is that he's doing but then there's this other thing that Jesus often does he says be healed and then he has this unique refrain that's so important he says oh by the way your sins are forgiven your sins are forgiven now the reason that Jesus I believe the reason actually that Jesus goes around healing is because healing was the most visible way he could show people that sins were being forgiven because they believed to be ill or to have some sort of thing that made you not perfect meant that you were sinful. And so when Jesus heals them, people see them as clean. What Jesus was trying to model, what Jesus was trying to show people was that sins were being forgiven. People were being made whole. People were being made clean. 
One day, Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and he sees uh, a guy named Peter and a guy named Andrew. And he says to them, come and follow me. And we read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 20, at once they left their nets and followed him. And then Jesus sees James and John in the boat, and their dad is with them, and he says to them, follow me. And immediately they left their boats and their father and followed him. Now, this verse, this passage right here, you can get a lot of mileage from as a preacher because you can come up and talk about this moment that, that Jesus sees them and says, look, you need to follow me. Drop everything right now. Whatever it is you're doing, drop everything and follow me. And then, and then I can come up here and say, and you too should do the same. And we can heap all kinds of shame and guilt on you. What is that thing that you're not willing, that life you're not willing to walk away from right now? Sell everything and give it to me or whatever the thing is. But the truth of the matter is, this is actually just part of the story. It's just a sliver of what actually takes place before Jesus calls these individuals. Luke gives us a bit more of the story. Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. One day Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And the people were crowding around him, listening to every word, listening to the word of God. So people are crowding around Jesus and, and he is teaching about this coming kingdom. He's teaching about what it looks like in this future reality that is already coming into the present. He's using phrases like, you've heard it said, but I tell you. And I think one of the interesting things about this moment, and, and just something that's kind of interesting or maybe important to say, is, is that Christianity is not afraid of information. We're not afraid of knowledge. We're not afraid of questions. We're not afraid of doubt. Because we often make faith to be like that moment where, you know, he sees Peter, or James and John, he's like, dude, leave your boat, and they immediately, without knowing anything, get up and just follow this guy because he's so magnanimous. But what we're going to discover is, is that that faith began with information. And all throughout the history of the church, it's been okay to, to study and to ask questions. We're never afraid of questions. We're never afraid of truth because we believe that we serve the ultimate truth. And ultimately, faith begins with information. So, Jesus is, 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 is teaching and people are crowding around him and listening. And so, verse 2, he, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. Now, fishermen would fish at night and the reason that you would fish at night is because when the when it would become when it the and during the daylight when it was warm the fish would go deeper and so in the evening it was cooler fish would rise to the top of the water and so you would go fishing at night and so they have these fishermen have been fishing all day or all night long and they are like ending their shift and they're they're kind of putting everything away they're kicking back, probably drinking a couple beers, doing whatever fishermen do on the edge of the shore. And so Jesus sees this, this boat and, and he sees these fishermen and he's like, hey, dude, can, can I borrow your boat? See, because what was happening is the crowds, this is a little bit my interpretation, but I think Jesus was an introvert. And, and people, when they'd get too close to him, made him uncomfortable. He's like, seriously, I just, 
like, I want to tell you about this future kingdom. And in fact, I'll even touch you when I heal you. But when I'm talking, can I have some space? And so the crowds are crowding in around Jesus. And he's just backing up and backing up and backing up and backing up. To literally, they've shoved him back to the shore of the lake. And he has no place to go. And he's like, this is not the moment I want to walk on water. And, and, so, and so Jesus sees the boat. And he's like, hey, dude, can you take me out about 10 yards so people can hear me, but so they can't get any closer. And he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, who we later know as Peter, and asked him to put out a little bit from the shore, and then he saw, thought, sorry, then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Luke gives us all these details. Luke is a historian. Luke is the guy when he tells a story, the story is not very interesting because he gives you so many details, you are bored by the end, right? You're just like, give me the Cliff Notes version. But Luke wants you to know the details. And when he had finished speaking, so Jesus has been teaching, and when he gets done, he turns to Simon, or he said to Simon, and he makes this really uh, unique request. He, he doesn't say, hey, follow me, leave everything behind. He doesn't say, make this radical departure. You know, you don't know who I am. I'm just this guy. Um, but I, you need to leave everything and follow me. Actually, what he says is, he says, he turns to him and says, put out into the deep water and let down your nets or the nets for a catch. Now, this is somewhat irrational because it's now daylight. It's now really warm. The fish are really deep. And, and it's irrational, but it's also something that Peter's completely capable of doing. It's not hard to let your nets down. It might be stupid. It might not make any sense. But it's, it can be done. And, and, and Simon answers him, Hey, Master, we've worked hard all night long. We've worked hard all night long. We're exhausted. And we haven't caught anything. Jesus, I don't mean to be rude. I really don't. But your family business is carpentry. Mine is fishing. Let me explain to you how fishing works. During the night, fish come to the top. In the heat of the day, right where, what, what's the temperature right now, Jesus? It's hot. The fish are low. When it was nighttime, I caught nothing. I'm not going to catch anything during the day. But this is this moment, we actually, I, we miss this. This is a pivotal moment in Peter's life. And Peter at this moment has no idea what hangs in the balance from this itty-bitty, tiny request. I mean, it's super easy, right? It's a little annoying to reclean your nets. But, I mean, it's so easy to, to throw your net in the water again. Simon Peter answered, Master, we haven't, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But then he says, because you say so. Because you say so. He might even say something like, because you say so. To be honest, you, you healed my mother-in-law. I owe you one. So because you say so, I will let down the nets. I find this so interesting that it's not some big giant thing that Jesus asked Peter to do. In fact, it's something quite ordinary, something that Peter has done a million times before. He's completely capable of doing. It's just simply throwing the net in the water. 
But in this moment, Jesus is saying, Peter, will you trust me with this tiny itty-bitty thing, even though it feels slightly irrational to you? Will you trust me? And so Peter says, okay, because you say so, I will do it. And then, verse 6, when they had done so, when they had done so. Now this, is, this even is so important. I just think it's like Christianity 101. Christianity, or being a follower of Jesus, put more simply, is not about believing all the right things or listening to all the right things. It's, it is a, is a faith that from the beginning has been about doing, right? So it's, it, it wasn't enough for Peter to hear Jesus. Yeah, okay, that's cool. That's cool, I hear you. No, Jesus is like, he, he, he does it. He, he, when, he, when he had done it, when he had taken action, he'd put the nets into the water. Doing makes all the difference. When they put the nets in the water, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And then this, this moment, this is such a key moment in Peter's life. Because he had no idea what hung in the balance. And for whatever reason, this is the thing that just opened his eyes. And he, when Simon Peter saw this, when he saw what Jesus had done... He fell at Jesus' knees and he said, go away from me, Lord. Go away from me, Savior. I know who you are right now. I know you are a great religious person. Like, I know you are the person that we have been waiting for. But I need to warn you, you need to get away from me now. This is such a, a moving moment. Go away from me, Lord. And then he says, why? Because I am a sinful or actually a better way of translating, the way I like to translate this, and it's a consistent translation, is I'm an irreligious man. Jesus like, you don't get this. Now, I am not religious. I am unclean. When you hear about bad seeds or bad apples, that's me. You need to get away from me now. I don't, I, you saw me with the boat. I, I, I get it. You needed someone to help you out. But you need to get away from me now because I am no good. See, because Peter was operating in a worldview that said, if you were broken, if you weren't perfect, if you were sinful, then you were not good enough to be around God. There was a separation, a gulf, but Jesus had come to reverse all that. In fact, Jesus says, what you need to understand is that the people who are broken, they're the ones that God draws near to. They're the ones that are invited to the table. At this moment, Peter doesn't know that Jesus has come to establish a brand new covenant. He doesn't know that that covenant would be governed, governed by a new ethic that would become part of a movement that Peter would one day lead. And for he and all of his companions, verse 9, for he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were the sons of James and John, right? The Matthews, Matthew just skims over the facts. He just has Jesus calling James and John. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, come. No, but James and John were there. They, they see all this go down. And so James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners, then said to Jesus, oh, then Jesus said to Simon, 
Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And from now on, you will fish for people. Come on, Peter. Let's go and change the world together. I know your story. I know who you are. But I know who you could be. I see you for who you were created to be. Peter, you've got potential. I see past your rough edges. I see past your quick temper. I see past all the other things that people see about you. Come on, Peter. Let's go and change the world. So they pulled up their boats on shore. They left everything. And they followed him. It's a powerful story. Like it's, it's the type of thing that you just read over really quickly. But when you slow down and just pick up on the drama and the tension of this passage, it's powerful. And then we turn to us. And some of you who are like considering following Jesus, your reaction is, if you're anything like me, is like, well, that is incredible. If Jesus showed up and did, did something like that for me, I would totally follow him. Right? My, my example this morning, which I realize is a really lame example, but I'm like, let's say you're cooking in the kitchen and you're making this, this great dish and it's just not working. And you've put so much salt in it that you, you like, you've gone overboard. And then Jesus is in your kitchen and he says, just put a bit more salt in. And you're like, oh, Jesus, you don't understand. I've already oversalted this. And Jesus like, just a bit more. And you dump a little extra in, and it's the best dish that anyone in human history has ever made. Be like, wow, you are amazing. I dedicate my life to you, right? Like, we're like, if Jesus showed up and did something so out of this world, if we could see it like Peter did, then it would be easy for me to take that next step and follow Jesus. But unfortunately, that was a long time ago, and Jesus hasn't been walking the earth in a while. But, but Peter would be like, if you told Peter that, well, Peter, if I'd seen what you saw, clearly I would follow him. Peter would be like, seriously, are you, are you kidding me? Do you know what he did for you? Did you not read the rest of the story? I wrote an entire book. I know it's further back in the Bible and it often gets overlooked. But I wrote an entire book telling a bit of what he did for you. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 23, Peter would look at you and say, when they hurled their insults at him, when he emptied himself of power and allowed himself to be captured and crucified on a tree, when they hurled his ins their insults at him, he did not retaliate. Peter's like, I saw this with my own eyes. And when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He bore himself, he himself bore or took on our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins. Put another way, he took on our brokenness, he took on our shame. 
He took on our imperfections. He took on the stories that we've been told since birth, the stories that told us about the ways that we had to live, the things that told us that we had to perform in a certain way, or the stories that told us that we weren't good enough. He took on the stories that told us that might makes right. He took on the story that, tells, that told us from an early age that you just need to get all the things you can for yourself. You've got to look out for number one. If you don't look out for you, nobody else will. Jesus takes all of that on himself so that we might die to sin, so we might die to the stories that we've been told and live for righteousness, be raised again, to be resurrected to God's new life, into God's new kingdom, a kingdom of love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and self-control. A kingdom like this world has never seen. He died, he took, bore our sins so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And then he continues on verse 24. By his wounds, and then Peter would look us in the eye and say, by his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. He's like, you've been healed. It's already been done for you. You just need to accept the gift that has been offered I know you've been carrying around this weight for, for ages and you've been, you've been living under this cloud that tells you that you're not good enough, that, that you're not perfect enough, that you just don't have it all together. Those people over there, those good people over there, they belong to, they, they deserve to follow Jesus, but I just, I'm just a little too broken. He said, no, 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 you don't get it. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is so powerful. It means that instead of being separated from God like we've been told, it means that we can have an intimate relationship with God. Because of Jesus, he took on our sins and we died to separation from God and, and now we are raised to a, a relationship of intimacy with God, the creator of the universe. And Peter says, you should know that by his wounds you've been healed. You should know that you've been restored, that you've been made right with God. He's like, that fish trick was really cool. I wish you could have been there, but something so much greater has happened. Something so much greater has happened. And then I think Peter would look at you and say, how knowing what you know, being on the other side of the story, have you not decided to take a step and follow Jesus? It, it, it is such, a, it is such a, a, a unique moment because all Jesus does is ask Peter to do something he's done a million times before and he asks them to take an itty bitty step. I think sometimes good religious folk, pastors and preachers and people who have their lives all together, they, they make it seem like becoming a follower of Jesus means that you, you've got to take this massive leap. You've got to believe all the right things. You've got to have your life all figured out. You've got to do some big, giant, over-the-top gesture to show that you really have committed your life to following Jesus. 
But what we see in this moment with Peter, Peter, the guy who goes to be like the guy who starts the church, all Jesus says is, Peter, I need you to do this one tiny thing. You've done it a million times before. It, it seems a little crazy right now, but can you take this step? Peter, will you trust me? Not, Peter, will you trust me with everything? I need you to sign in the dotted line and believe all the right things and do all the right things. No, no, Peter, just one thing. Can you do this itty-bitty thing? Just, can you take a next step? And so, my question, in fact, if you've been around the table for any period of time, you've probably heard this question to the point where it, it gets a bit old. But my question is, what's your next step? What's that, that itty-bitty thing that God is asking you to do? For some of you, there is, for some of you, you've, you've been resisting following Jesus because you have a laundry list of reasons of why you can't follow Jesus. Maybe it's your past. Maybe you feel you are too broken. If we knew your story, then we would understand, right? That's why you can't follow Jesus. Right? You're just too far gone. For some of you, you've got all these doubts. Right? You've got all these things that you just cannot figure out or reconcile. And you're like, someday if I figure all this out, if I make sense of it all, then maybe I'd follow Jesus. I hear that this actually happens a lot in conversations that I have with people. And, and, and they'll be like, I really, I really dig this Jesus guy. But, but I got all these things I'm not quite sure that I believe. And Jesus is like, look, I'm not asking you to, 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 to believe in everything. I'm just saying, can you take a next step and can you follow me? That's the, that's the refrain throughout the gospel. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Just take a step. We'll figure the other stuff out on the journey. So for some of you, that, that next step is, you're like, you just need to say, hey, Jesus, I, I've got so many questions and I, I don't, I do not have it figured out and I'm not even sure what I think of all this and, but I know that I don't want to keep living the way that I'm living by the story that I'm living by. It's eating me alive. And I want to live a life of love and joy and peace and justice and gentleness and kindness and self-control. Jesus, I don't, I don't know. All I know is that's the life I want and I will take that next step. Some of you just need to say yes to Jesus tonight. Others of you, you've been following Jesus for a long time, but your spiritual life is dead. It just is. Like you were going through the motions, but if anyone could see inside of you, they would know that you were just, you were just showing up and doing what you're supposed to do because you're a good person and you have, a, a, you have packaged up religion and you've figured out how to manage it and so you show up Sunday after Sunday, but your spiritual life is dead. For some of you, God is asking you to take a next step. I don't even know what that next step is. Maybe it is, maybe it is serving something beyond yourself because we've talked about this multiple times over the past few weeks, but, but, if you, but if you live your life only for yourself, you will have nothing to show but yourself. We were made for something bigger. We were made to serve others, right? So some of you need to, to, to go back to that sermon we did a few weeks ago about the question, what breaks your heart? And you need to take that next step. Others of you, you, you have a, there, there is a, a relationship that has been severed. Maybe it's a friendship, right? You, you, the, you said some harsh words. I, it was partially their fault. I get it. It, 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 it normally is. But, but to be, you, you, you probably were a little harsher than you should have been. 
And I know they should apologize to you. I know. But maybe you just send a text to say, hey, I just want to let you know, I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I said you're a complete idiot. You are only partially an idiot. I just want to clarify. I just want to say I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I don't know what your next step is. I could go through a million different things. But Jesus isn't like calling you and asking you to like give up everything, sell all you have and move halfway across the world. Maybe he is. Maybe, that's your, maybe he is calling you to that. But most of you, I'm guessing it's a pretty small step. Like the Christian faith, the Christian journey, it is a journey. Jesus is always like, come follow me. Let's, let's do this thing together. Let's take one step at a time. We'll figure it out as we go. It's about putting one foot in front of the other. What's the next step? What's your next step? And here's what I want you to hear. That moment that Peter decides to throw the net on the other, the, or decides to put his net back in the water, he had no idea what hung in the balance with that decision. Because he very easily and would have been justified in saying, carpenter boy, I know what I'm doing. We're not putting the net back down. And Peter would have been another fisherman who died in oblivion. But because he put the net back in the water, Peter goes on to be really the founder of the church as we know it today. What's your next step? Because what I need you to know is that you have no idea what hangs in the balance. I've really been impressed lately with this idea, and I've talked to a few of you about this, that, that often we want to change the world, we want to do something grand, and so we want like, to, to make it happen right away. But, but often when you study people who, who make a big difference in the world, you find out that they are faithful in small things, day after day after day. And then someday, fire strikes and something just explodes and it changes the world. It wasn't that they did some big grand guest gesture, it was they were faithful in the small things. And so whatever your next step is, and the step after that, you have no idea what hangs in the balance. What God wants to do in you and through you and for you. What's your next step? Let me pray for you. And 